This show is brought to you by Catholic Votes The Loop. Your free daily news delivered straight into your inbox every morning. It's got the most important headlines from trusted sources, the best of blogs, your saint of the day, the daily scripture readings, and it's all free. It's about the only email that Dave actually reads. Uh, so what are you waiting for? Go to getTheLoop.com, sign up for The Loop, and let them know that The Catholic Man Show sent you so they continue to sponsor our shows. Uh, this episode was really awesome. I really enjoyed the conversation with Andrew Whitmore, even though I had a three-second delay in my headphones so I could hear myself in a three-second delay, which was super frustrating, but uh, it worked out. It was It's a great conversation that we had on prudence, on conscience, on forming your conscience. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. Cheers. All right, welcome to this special edition of the Catholic Man Show. I'm Adam Minahan. We are sans David Niles today. He is on vacation. Uh, but I have the pleasure of uh, talking this uh, this evening to Andrew Whitmore. He's a professor, assistant professor at Christendom College for the Department of Theology. Got his PhD at Catholic University of America. And he is the new author, or an author of a new book, I should say, uh, Saintly Habits, Aquinas' Seven Simple Strategies, you can use to grow in virtue by Ascension Press. There it is, right there. Um, I love, I love the uh, cover, Andrew. Um, why don't you, for those who maybe not, not following along, is that a holy cow? What, what, what's going on on, on the cover there? Thanks for having me on the show, Adam. Happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. On the on the cover art, we have an ox because the book is based off of the thought of Saint Thomas Aquinas, who was called the dumb ox um, because well, there's different explanations I've heard for that, but he didn't speak very much and he was very large. And so people just thought he was this dumb ox. Turns out he's the most, perhaps the most brilliant saint we've ever had. Um, but we've got this ox with a halo crushing a serpent. So it's supposed to represent Aquinas strategies on virtue for overcoming vice. Some people look at it though and they say, why do you have a holy cow, right? What, didn't the Bible say something was wrong about holy cows? Uh, but no, it's a halo <laughs> with an ox. <laughs> Uh, that's great. That's great. So yeah, so we're on the Catholic Mantra, we talk about all the time, we talk about different virtues. We talk about the importance of living the virtuous life, how to cultivate virtue within the family, um, how to live, you know, just a, a holy life in general. Um, your book is 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 great because it gives very practical, very uh, concrete ways of how to, how to do so with good definitions. Um, I figure we could start off by defining some terms. Um, and I wanted to talk about maybe prudence today, talk about our conscience, which is something that I think is widely misunderstood. But let, let, let's start out by with, with, with just prudence, who is considered the mother of all virtues. What is prudence exactly? Yeah, of all, I mean, Aquinas talks about I don't know, something like 80 different virtues in the Summa Theologiae. But prudence, as you rightly say, is one of the most important um, Setting aside, of course, faith, hope, and charity, and charity as the form of all the virtues. But prudence at a natural level is this form of the virtues, the mother of the virtues. Prudence, it's funny, Aquinas never really defines, like, we look, we make flashcards for studying, for example, and stuff, like, what's the definition for this virtue? Aquinas doesn't always give definitions, sometimes more descriptions. So there's a variety of different ways he talks about it. But sometimes he calls it practical wisdom. Sometimes he calls it right knowledge applied to right action. 
I think if we wanted to define it, maybe we could call it the, the virtue or the habit of just being able to identify accurately what the virtuous action is. What should I do? What is courageous? What is just? What is temperate? Okay, yeah, so I, I, I like that. But in order to maybe in, in order to see that, you ha in order to be able to have that, that habit, you have to have that experience, it seems like, right? So uh, experience has to play a role in here. So how young can you be to actually acquire virtue? Can you acquire it at a young age? Or is this something only for like father time, so to speak, or, or the grandfather sitting at the heart of the home telling ancient wisdom of, of your family's origin or something like that? Like, uh, how does age and prudence play a role in, in one another? It's such a good question. So I, virtue is my specialty. I mean, in terms of what I teach, I'm trying, hopefully I can be virtuous too, but <laughs> um, teaching virtues, my passion there. And um, sometimes students find it really frustrating or just people in general find it frustrating because we like black and white and we like to know, okay, don't do this, do this. Prudence is helping us do that, but one of the frustrating things with virtues is it's not just following laws. Following laws is a starting point. Following the rules is a starting point. You can't be moral, you can't be virtuous without that. But the life of virtue really takes us beyond just the mere rules. The rules are the starting point, the commandments. You can't be moral if you don't follow them, but you could follow the Ten Commandments and still be a jerk of a person. Right? Oh, I didn't kill anyone today, didn't commit adultery today. Uh, the bar's not very high there. So virtue takes us to that higher bar. But to do that, right, prudence has to determine not just am I breaking any rules here, but what is demanded of me in this moment, in these circumstances? And the circumstances are always changing. And so that's what can be frustrating about virtue, why it's demanding, but also why it's so worthwhile to really have that human perfection of being able to figure out what is the right thing to do at any time. Now, to get there, right, you're going to need life experience, it would seem minimally. And there's kind of two tracks I want to go here. I'll let you jump in if you want, but two tracks. You have prudence as a natural virtue, and then you have prudence as a graced virtue. And we can talk about prudence in the life of the Christian, prudence in the life of just anybody. So let's start with that, prudence in anybody. Um, Aquinas draws on Aristotle for a lot of his virtue ethics. He draws on St. Augustine a lot too. But when Aristotle's looking at it, he has no idea about grace, no concept of grace, the Christian God, anything like that. And he says straight up, only the old person can be prudent because it takes all these different life experiences. It takes memory of what went right, what went wrong. He says, if a younger person is going to be prudent, it's only because they've observed in person so much they can start to make that person's experiences their own. They somehow internalize this like, um, like osmosis or something, uh, a vicarious experience through another person. But that's going to be rare. For Aristotle, it's, a, yeah, you need, it's going to be a lifetime journey. Now, for the Christian, I think it's still a lifetime journey, but we have this interesting dynamic going on that when we are baptized, God infuses into us these new character traits. He's given us a new nature. He's elevated our very being. He's given us faith, open charity, and along with that come the infused cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. So now you've got this weird thing. On the one hand, it seems naturally, you can only be prudent if you're old. But then we're trying to say over here for a Christian that a baby who can't even talk is prudent. And what can that possibly mean? 
Um, so, yeah, I didn't know if you want to jump in there. Yeah, so so I'm curious. So I I feel like that. Um, so if I don't get, plan out a, a scenario ahead of time, and then the scenario happens, uh, and I don't act the right way, I I look back at it and be like, ah, oh, that's not how I should have. I should have acted, but if I plan ahead, if I know that it's going to happen, it's like, okay, if they say this, then I'm going to say this, and then that way I'm a loving Christian man, and I don't just completely trash the guy or, or his his thought process, you know, and I, and then, so then I'm like, okay, prudently, I need to speak this way and not this way, so if I don't do that, if I don't have that action, then um, I, then I tend to be imprudent, you know, I make, I make bad decisions, so it seems like almost that you have to act imprudently to be prudent because you have to have that, that experience. Is that, is that actually true? Yeah, another great question here. So to say a little bit more to kind of what I was just talking about and tie it into your new question. So the Christian, as long as you're in the state of grace, you have infused prudence, is what Aquinas would call it. Now, the virtues we have by grace can look a little bit different at first than the virtues that we can have naturally. So for Aquinas, it would seem that, yeah, can non-Christians be virtuous? Certainly. But it's going to take their whole life. It's going to take a lot of effort because really what you need is by the sheer force of your habit, you need reason, prudence, namely as the mother of the virtues, to, he would say, rectify or we could say make reasonable your will and your emotions. And once they've become reasonable, now your, your reason, your will your free choice, your emotions are all going to work in harmony, work in concert. So by the time you get there, that's going to take so long, but it's going to be really strong by that point. And so you're rarely going to face temptations, he says. If you do face temptations, the temptation is probably so strong that because you don't have grace, you're going to cave to it. But hopefully you won't face many. Now for the Christian, we just said, you know, a baby has virtue, and it kind of doesn't make sense to say that, but it does if we think, all right, they have a new nature, God's given these new character traits, they don't have the use of reason yet, so they can't use those virtues, but they do possess them. And this is a technical term for Aquinas. He says a habit is something in between a capacity of our nature and the actual doing of it. So all of us have certain capacities to act this way or that. The habit or the virtue or a vice is this in-between thing. So you can have it virtually, even if you're not able to exercise it yet. So the baby has it. Now we grow. But for Aquinas, he says what's infused into us is prudence about matters of salvation. So how can I avoid mortal sin? How can I obey the commandments? Prudence in other matters, it seems like that still needs to grow in us. So for the Christian, the virtue we have, as long as you're in the state of grace, you're virtuous. It, it seems like kind of a, a cheap shortcut there. Um, like it almost doesn't take as much effort. However, there's a little difference here. And the way to explain it is, I think there's two different types of perfection going on. Aquinas says virtue is a type of perfection of our being. I call the acquired virtues or the natural virtues the perfection of coordination. All the different capacities that you have are coordinated toward one end. For graced virtues or infused virtues, there's a different perfection going on at first, and that's the perfection of end. That now everything you're doing, you're doing with charity, so it's all in union with Christ, it's meritorious, you're acting for your supernatural destiny of union with God, which the non-Christian is not doing. So even if kind of materially looking at these two people, it seems like the non-Christian is maybe a little more impressive, like that was more just or more temperate or whatever. 
for the Christian, it's meritorious, right? It's actually helping you get to heaven. So you could think of a non-Christian saving like a, a, a school bus of children from crashing off a highway or something. Wow, heroic, right? Great courage. You think of a, a Christian mother just getting her kid dressed in the morning. She does that with charity. That's actually a better act. It sounds weird to say, but because it has this higher perfection, this perfection of end, of the supernatural end. Now, in time, um, our grace virtue might also have that perfection of coordination. But I think this helps explain the example. Take like, um, like an alcoholic goes to confession for whatever reason. Maybe it's because they were drinking immoderately. And then he comes out of confession. He's in the state of grace, but he still wants alcohol. So it seems like he doesn't have that perfect virtue as we would think of it. But he's in the state of grace, so he must have virtue. Well, it's a different type of perfection. So trying to tie all this back to your question that you just asked, do we have to make mistakes? Well, I, I, I don't want to say we have to, because we have the example of Mary, who was without sin, and she would grow in virtue. She'd grow in grace, and she didn't sin. So it's, we don't have to, but I think the reality is we're all going to sin. We're all going to fall. We're all going to um, act imprudently, but God can bring good out of that evil. And so we can learn from those mistakes and help us. But it's not automatic. We can make mistakes and just keep making mistakes. We have to be reflective. We have to think back, do an examination of conscience. Okay, so can you, can you parse out, if, as a Christian, does, okay, so I understood this, the natural versus the supernatural virtues. Does it look different, like, um, can you be temperate or can you act with courage or can you be just without being prudent? For Aquinas, he says no, that the virtues are all connected. Because prudence is about knowing what is just, what is courageous, if you're not prudent, you're never going to be courageous, at least not in a stable way. Maybe you know a broken clock is right twice a day. You might luck out and happen to do something virtuous, but it's not going to be true virtue. So this is why it's the mother of all virtues. It's very similar to charity, right? Like you can do everything in love, and so you can do everything prudently. Yeah. And it, again, if it's pointing out what the virtuous act is, Aquinas says that every virtue has at least two vices opposed to it, either going beyond what's reasonable or falling short of what's reasonable. But sometimes the vices look like virtues to us. And the easiest example for that is courage. Because courage, you would say, is a mean between cowardice. We all know what cowardice is. But then he says there's being too courageous, which is foolhardiness or rashness, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, you think of an example like a firefighter is courageous or should be courageous. But cur courage doesn't mean getting rid of fear. Ask any firefighter, and they're going to say they're still afraid of the fire, but they know how to manage that fear. They know how to contain it and still do the right thing. They have their proper training. They have their equipment. They have their team. They know what to do. Now, I'm not a firefighter. So if I'm walking down the street one day and I see a burning building and I think, oh, man, I can be a hero. I'm going to run into that building. Maybe I can save a child if they're in there. Let's say I go and do that. Really, that's foolhardy for me because I don't know what, to do, what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know. I don't have the equipment for it. I don't even know if there's people in there. Now, if I make it out of the burning building with a baby in my arms, everyone's going to cheer for me and say, oh, what a hero. So it looks like courage. But let's take it the other way. Like, I never come out of the building 
and I just die. And the firefighters are like, that was a controlled demolition. Why would that idiot run in there? Um, clearly foolhardy. And everyone's going to say, well, what a fool. So prudence helps us to determine that, right? Is this true courage or is this foolhardiness? Uh, same thing, our culture, when it comes to chastity, our whole culture thinks that chastity is just all these no's. Right? I can't do this. I can't have any fun. I can't be spontaneous. And that's not chastity, right? That would be prudishness, which is the extreme. Chastity is the proper moderation of love. So that does mean saying no to certain things, but also means saying yes to certain things. And I know you did a podcast recently on um, how to treat your wife well and how to love her and not give her your cross and things like that, um, right? That's yeah. true chastity, but the culture sees chastity as prudishness. So we have this tendency to collapse the vices into the virtues or to see vices as virtues. Okay, that makes sense. Do you see, do you think that virtue, you know, so you're saying virtues in the middle, kind of a, between the two extremes, does virtue tend to be leaning towards one extreme rather than the other? Yes, it does. It depends on the virtue. For courage, Aquinas would say it tends more toward the foolhardiness than the cowardice. For chastity, it tends more toward the prudishness than the lustfulness. That might also explain why we sometimes collapse them into each other and confuse them with each other. For justice, you'll say justice can have an actual like mathematical midpoint. Um, but even there are different types of justice that can look different too. Uh, so what if, so experience, what if I don't have all this experience, right? So let, let's say I'm a, I'm a younger guy that I'm just trying to navigate uh, the, the, living the family life, living, you know, just trying to get my, I'm just trying to get my family to heaven, right? And I, I don't have the opportunity to go and read a bunch of uh, books or anything to, to equip myself for situations. Does prudence though help? take universal uh, scenarios to where you can take those universals and apply them to particulars even if you have not experienced those particulars? Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, to do it in some sort of theoretical way. The, the good thing about prudence, or maybe the bad thing depending on how you look at it, is we always have to be practicing it. There's no moment where you can say, I'm taking a break from prudence. I guess this would be true of all the virtues. But really, any moral decision we make, any voluntary decision is going to be an opportunity to grow in virtue. So sometimes we think about these virtues on the grand scale and think, oh, I don't have that yet. But think of St. Therese in a little way, right, to do the small things with love or here, do them with reason. That's already a practice of prudence. So we have these universal principles. And Aquinas says that we actually have them in us somewhat by nature. Um, we have to discover them, but they're already there. Things like do good and avoid evil. He says everybody follows that. And that at first sounds crazy because we think of all the evil in the world. But he says, look at even the murderer. The murderer is choosing some good, but it's, it's such a lesser good than the goodness of the other person's life or something like that. Maybe they're choosing the good of, oh, if I kill this person, I'll get power. Power is a good. Or I'll get wealth. Wealth is a good. Or I can steal their wife or whatever it may be. They're choosing some good, but at the expense of a greater good, it's a disordered attachment to that lesser good, which makes it evil and makes it a sin. So Aquinas thinks we all operate by do good and avoid evil, but we mix up what's good and evil. So that's where everything goes wrong. He says in the universal premises, most of the time we get those right. It's in the application of them that we get them wrong. And yeah, for a busy person who doesn't have time to, to read books and to do all the study, there are other avenues for growing in prudence. I think the the 
most fundamental way is just the daily or nightly examination of conscience. To just think back mm. on the day, what were the decisions I made? Which ones went right? Which ones went wrong? Where can I improve them? Why did this go wrong? What was the temptation? Was it an occasion of sin that I can avoid? And we just start there. That's a pretty fundamental way. But beyond that, we look to other people who are virtuous and we imitate them. This goes back to Aristotle himself saying this, Aquinas agrees, we imitate the virtuous person. Maybe we don't know any virtuous people in this life, mm -hmm. but as Christians, we have the advantage of knowing the saints. When we hear these stories about the saints, we mm -hmm. read the lives of the saints, we listen to podcasts about the saints, and we imitate their life. And there's so many of them, we cannot each find someone that we relate to. So is man capable of choosing a bad, an evil decision? Or is it just a, a lack of understanding of a higher good? Yeah, there's so many different ways to answer that question. Sorry, that was probably a loaded thinkers. question. I'm sorry. No, it's a great question. I mean, that's what makes it so fascinating. So on the one hand, I want to, well, the great Catholic answer is always yes, right? Both and. So we got to explain it both ways. So on the one hand, yes, you can choose evil. I'm not trying to say like there's no evil in the world or evil is just ignorance or something. That's kind of a platonic idea of evil that he, he thinks virtue is just knowledge in rightly applying knowledge. So if you know something, then you'll do it. And if you're not doing it, then you just don't know it. And some people that appeals to, for Aquinas, he takes more, as we said, Aristotelian bent, which is, no, there are these different human capacities. They can be perfected in different ways. And there's a difference between knowing what to do and actually doing it. So for example, I'm a professor of moral theology. I could pursue that just as a means of like finding loopholes and trying to like avoid being virtuous in this really nefarious way. He would say, I have intellectual virtue, but I don't have moral virtue, right? I, I have this understanding of morality, but I don't have the application of it. So I'm not a good person. The mad scientist is another great example. They have all this understanding or knowledge of science, but they just, if they use it to bad ends, they're not a good person. I'm sorry, I forgot what the original question was. No, no, no. I mean, that's good. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, we're just talking about like, is it, are you actually capable of choosing evil? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So for Aquinas, he'd say, again, evil is always a sort of lack. Metaphysically, he says that God is being, right. God is good. So the opposite of good is bad. The opposite of being is non-being. So absolute evil doesn't exist, metaphysically speaking. So all evil is going to be a, a sort of lack. So in that sense, you could say you can't choose evil, or at least you can't choose it for its own sake. But you can choose evil for the sake of some good. And that's like the example of the murder. Why did I kill the person? Because I want power. So I chose an evil, but I did it for this, this warped good. And uh, so in that case, yeah, you can certainly choose evil. And when we do that repeatedly, that's when we develop vices. Right. And so prudence helps dictate uh, to us an uh, understanding, like, what is the highest good, like, Take, putting the highest good at the highest level, right? And, and then ordering them in a hierarchy of good. Prudence is all so about prudence, prioritizing well. Right, yeah, yeah. So, so, so does prudence actually change any kind of moral absolutes? It wouldn't be able to change moral absolutes. Um, certainly the church teaches we have these intrinsic evils. And really, what are they getting at? To kind of take a step back, when we say things are good or evil morally, what we mean is they're either good for our nature or they're against our nature. So God's created mm -hmm. us for him. He's created us for happiness, but our ultimate happiness rests in union with God. 
So there's certain activities that will lead us to that, certain ones that will lead us away. God knows us better than we know ourselves, and so he gives us the divine cheat sheet, the Ten Commandments. He says, look, if you're going around killing each other, stealing each other's wives, lying to each other, you're not going to have that true happiness. You're not going to flourish. You're not going to be content. So when we say, like, an action is good, what we mean is it's conducive to your nature. It makes you more human. It makes you more excellent. When you choose something evil, you become less human. And we even kind of say that, right? Like this person, oh, they acted like an animal. We have this acknowledgement hmm. somewhere deep within ourselves that you're acting less than human. So when we do the good, we become more human. When we do what's evil, we become less human. So in that sense, the church says, well, there's certain activities that you can just never do. It doesn't matter what your intention is. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. They're never going to lead to authentic human excellence and happiness and flourishing. Um, things like abortion, euthanasia, contraception, right? These things can never lead to that authentic happiness. Now, we can talk later maybe about culpability, right? Sometimes because people are ignorant of why they're wrong or that they're wrong, maybe they're not fully culpable for it, but it's still not making them happy, right? It's still not making them into better people. So prudence can't change that. We can't say like, oh, I know this is always wrong, but in this case, I think it's right. Well, no, if it's always wrong, then it's always wrong. So prudence can't change any moral absolutes. It can help us determine what the right course of action is. And I think that there's always a right course of action. St. Augustine would say there's never a situation where you can only sin. Right? There's always some option, even if it means non-action and being martyred, which we might not like to mm -hmm. think about, but sometimes that's the virtuous choice. Um, but interestingly, Aquinas does say there are these other... With all the virtues, he says there are many different parts to them. A lot of different things need to come together in order to have the virtue. We've, we've kind of said a little bit about it. For prudence, you need experience. You need memory. You need to be open to being taught. You need um, to be able to reason. You need to be able to kind of look to the future and think what are the yeah, foresight. potential outcomes of, yeah, foresight. Um, but he says one part of, of prudence because prudence really entails three things. He says that you have to take counsel about what you should do. You need to make a judgment about what you should do. And then you actually need to command your will to do it. And the prudent person, they're only prudent if they follow through with doing the right thing. Kind of like we said before, if you make the right judgment, oh, this is what I should do, but then you don't do it, then you weren't prudent. Right? Prudent entails that command. But part of prudence, part of making that right judgment he calls it, it's this weird Greek word, gnome. It looks like gnome, <laughs> so it's kind of a funny word. But it means um, right judgment in the minority of cases where most of the time, whatever the laws say, whatever the rules say, we just follow that. And that's what's the prudent thing. That's what's the right thing. But every once in a while, on a rare occasion, there will be some way, some situation where when we follow the rules exactly as they're written, it actually will do more harm than good. It'll actually like be injurious to the common good. So he has the special virtue of gnome, where he says, in those cases, we need to be able to determine what was the spirit of the lawgiver. Because a lawgiver can't can't like think through every single possible situation that could ever occur. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, right, we just settle for a law and we say, this is the law, a speed limit, for example. Everyone should uh, no, go no higher than 60 miles an hour on this highway. 
But all of a sudden you're in the situation, your wife's about to give birth, her, her water broke, you got to get to the hospital, but it's a long way away. You're going to speed down the highway. Now, Aquinas says that's actually the right thing to do. And today our laws actually support that. If you call the police, they give you an escort to do that. But this is an exercise of the sub-virtue gnome where you can't change the moral absolutes, but sometimes what you figure out is there's a different good that's being pursued here. It's a different moral object altogether. And, and so for that reason, it might look like you're breaking the law, but really what you're doing is in conformity with the lawgiver's intention. So the lawgiver said, yes, why do we have speed limits? Because we want to preserve uh, the common good. We want to keep people safe on the road. Well, you're not safe right here if you're going to have to pull over and give birth on the side of the highway. So safety and the common good is preserved by allowing this person to get to the hospital as soon as possible. Now, I think that that's a very clear-cut example that, you know, extremes always help us to, to determine, like, good, good examples and what we're trying to convey. But I think that a harder one would be, like, we are, you're with a group of friends, and they're all deciding to do something that's immoral, right? And you have to either decide, uh, am I going to stand up and actually tell them that this is wrong, or do I just, like, not participate? You know, do I just, like, do nothing, or do I be active in, in like, a, like, an active approach to it? Um, I think that sometimes it's easy to say, well, the pastoral, quote-unquote pastoral, we, that, that's a loaded term in and of itself, but like, you know, the pastoral approach is like, I'm just not going to say anything because I don't want to jeopardize being able to evangelize them in the future, so I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to dismiss myself. But would the prudent thing actually be to, you know, uh, instruct the ignorant, so to speak, you know, it, to be, to say, I love you so much that I want the best for you, namely, I, you cannot be doing this immoral act. Yeah, it's a very tough question. When it, we're getting to the spiritual works of mercy here, instructing the ignorant, fraternal correction, fraternal correction. So let me say up front, myself, I need to be better at this. I think as a culture, we need to be better at this. The big virtue mm -hmm. that's held up in society today is not offending other people. And right. it's really not, that's not charity. Um, not that we want to go around offending people, but we kind of err to such an extreme of not wanting to offend people that then we don't correct them, we don't teach them, um, because, you know, maybe it's, it's selfishly motivated. I want them to think well of me, and if I offend them, they won't think well of me, so maybe it's vainglory. Maybe it's cowardice because I don't want to, a confrontation, whatever it may be. But I think in general, fraternal correction is so important. So the first point is I think we need to challenge ourselves, and it's probably more often than we think the right answer and the prudent answer is to instruct them to fraternally correct. But with that said, there's still a, a good way to go about it, especially with fraternal correction. Jesus gives us some advice in the Gospels. He says, first off, you start with um, a one-on-one. -on -one kind of intervention privately. Now, sometimes practically, like the example you gave, you might not be able to do that. So we, we can consider that too. But Jesus basically says, first, you start off privately, trying to correct them. If they're mm -hmm. still persistent in their sin, then you do an intervention with other people. Maybe they think you're just out to get them, so they'll hear from other people. If they don't listen to that, well, then you publicly call them out. Maybe the embarrassment is what they need. And if they still persist, then you need to cut them off with hopes that they'll kind of see the gravity of what they've done and, and want reconciliation. Now, the example you said is you're with a group of friends, you're out doing something. Again, this is, this is why people get frustrated with virtue. 
it depends, right? On the right. one hand, prudence might dictate like, yeah, absolutely. Um, if you say something right now, they will all, like that'll prevent them from doing the bad thing. If you stay quiet, they're all going to do it. So you actually have a duty at that moment to speak up and to tell them this is wrong. Maybe they don't know it's wrong. And so it's a, it's a real learning moment there. There can be other times though where conceivably the right choice is you don't participate, but you keep quiet and then um, you know, privately later you might correct them. I think it depends on how grave the evil is and how much harm it's going to do to other people. So if you're correcting every single little thing a person does, they're just going to get mad at you and then they're going to resist and yeah. harden their heart. Uh, kind of like Jesus says, take the uh, beam out of your own eye before the speck out of your neighbor's eye. But if this right. is something serious, right, they're, they're going to damage property or they're going to get drunk or they're going to um, coerce somebody else, you know, and that's a moment where you need to speak up, even if they get mad at you, even if they get offended, right, the right thing to do there is to correct them and hopefully they'll see that in time. So this is where prudence plays such a huge role. And then this also plays uh, where conscience plays such a huge role, right? Like your conscience of understanding like what you should be doing, what you should not be doing. Maybe, can you help me define what, what conscience actually is? Conscience and prudence, it, it can be, they can get mixed up pretty easily. So let me try to separate them both. We could say that conscience the, the way that, again, like we kind of misunderstand in the culture, we get these different images. So you've got the Jiminy Cricket model, which is pretty decent. Um, Pinocchio with like the still and silent voice. Um, was it like protector on the straight and narrow path, something like that. Right. Great for your kids to te te teach for your kids. It's great to teach them. Like that's a great introduction. Great introduction. Oh yeah. For sure. I think it's probably the best that we have out there in media for conscience because the way it's described is exactly what our conscience does. The only weird thing is like it's a cricket outside you, which clearly is <laughs> <with> your conscience. <laughs> um, then we've got ones from like the Emperor's New Groove with the, the angel and the, the devil, the shoulder angel, shoulder devil. And we see that everywhere um, in media. And that doesn't give as good of a depiction because if, if they're both supposed to be conscience, then it seems like conscience is just these conflicting voices. And then in the end, you don't know what to do and you just kind of shoo it away and make your own decision. If the devil's temptation and the angel's conscience, then it works a little bit better. But conscience is just simply a moral evaluation of an act, whether it was past, present, or future. So we can do an examination of conscience, which is looking back on our acts. Did I do the right thing? Did I do the wrong thing? We could do a future act. We can hypothesize, right? Just like speculatively, what would you do in this situation? Or what should I do in that situation? Or it can be most often in the moment, like what should I do right now? But conscience is just that moral judgment. So sometimes people think they'll say things like, oh, that person has no conscience. For Aquinas, he says it's not true. Like everyone has conscience. You just either have correct conscience or incorrect conscience, a malformed or erroneous conscience. Because he says that going back to what we said before, these kind of universal principles like do good and avoid evil that we all have, the technical term he gives for that is synderesis. It's another weird Greek word that doesn't have a word in Latin or English. He calls it synderesis. Hmm. And he says, conscience is the act of synderesis. So we all have in us by nature, these universal principles, do good and avoid evil, don't do harm to another person. Um, God is to be worshiped. But then conscience is the application 
of that universal principle to the particular circumstances, and that's where we can get mixed up. So we could be confused on about what is good, what is evil, who is God, what is right worship, what is harm, who is my neighbor. Um, we can get all those things mixed up, and that's where we go wrong. That's where we have a, a bad conscience or, or an erroneous conscience. So conscience is just the judgment. Do I think this is right? Do I think this is wrong? Kind of what we believe in our heart of hearts. So like in the, in the deepest recesses of our being, like, do I think this is right? Do I think this is wrong? So how is prudence different? Well, prudence presupposes a right conscience. You can't be prudent hmm. if you have an erroneous conscience. If you're making bad judgments about what is right or wrong, then you're commanding yourself to do these bad actions. So you're not actually doing virtuous things. You're not actually contributing to your happiness and freedom and flourishing. So prudence presupposes a right conscience. So conscience is the right judgment. Well, conscience is the judgment. If we have a good conscience, then we make accurate judgments, meaning like, I think this is good, and in fact it is good. Or I think this is wrong, and in fact it is wrong. But then we still need that added step of commanding the will to follow through with it, and that's where prudence comes in. So prudence says, all right, we've got this accurate judgment, now act on it. So if that means correcting this person, then I do it. If that means being silent now and correcting them later, I do that, whatever it may be. So do you judge a moral act based off of its end? Is that how you judge a moral act? That's how a lot of people in the world today judge their moral acts. Uh, another word for end we could say is the, the, either the intention or the, the consequences. And so you get sometimes people who say kind of utilitarianism, the ends justify the means. And as long as we bring about the greatest good for the greatest number, um, that's okay. The church has always been against that way of doing ethics because you can justify heinous things with yeah. that mindset. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. I just think of abortion, right? We're, we're sacrificing these children mm -hmm. for the sake of whatever consequence people are looking for. Um, so we don't want to be a consequentialist or utilitarian. We also, we also don't want to justify it by just our intention. We've all heard the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Maybe we don't right. understand why. Um, this kind of goes back to before we were talking about prudence can't change moral absolutes. The church teaches that when we perform an act, there's actually three different parts to it. There's, there's the object. Uh, it's hard. I'll explain what that means in just a minute because it can get tough. Um, all these things together make the act. So you have the object of the act. You have the intention of the person who's choosing the act. And then you have the surrounding circumstances. And the essence of the act is the object and the intention. So the intention is the subjective point of view. The object is the objective point of view. So objectively, what am I doing? That's the first thing we need to analyze. But even that's tricky because the object itself kind of has its own two different parts. There's the material description, and then there's kind of its relationship to reason. Why was it chosen by a thinking, willing person? Um, and this gets people can get confused on this because different ethical theories also ignore parts of the moral object. Sometimes they think it's just material description. So for example, killing. Well, killing is wrong. Well, that means all killing is wrong. Wait, well, that would mean I can't defend myself. That means I can't defend my country. That means, right, all these different things. And so they think, well, then that must mean killing is okay. And killing is a morally neutral activity. Lions kill people. Lions kill gazelles. Nobody says, what an evil lion. 
Hurricanes kill people. We don't say an evil hurricane. So killing's fine, and it all depends on your intention. Well, the church says, no, actually killing is just the material description. But why would somebody choose killing? Well, there's different types of killing. There's, there's murder, killing an innocent person. There's capital punishment, the state putting somebody to death who they've tried all other means of um, preventing them from hurting the common good, and they just can't be contained anymore. And so we put them to death. Or uh, going to war as a soldier. Again, war being a last resort, but defending one's nation, defending the common good there. Or even self-defense, right? When I have to choose, somebody's broken in, they're, they're a great aggressor. I'm not, it's not that I want to kill the person, it's that I want to protect my family and myself. And the only way to do that may, might be to take this person's life. So all those might look the same. They're all types of killing. But the church teaches and Aquinas teaches that um, they're formally different that they're all, they all have different relations to reason. There's different reasons why they'd be chosen, which means they're different objects. Let me, let me give a, a more less extreme example, a more down-to-earth example to, to illustrate this. Because Aquinas, he'll use these technical terms. He says, if the object, so just to recap, we have object mm -hmm. and intention. The object has a material aspect and a formal aspect, which is its relation to reason. It's a type of end. Use the word end before. Aquinas distinguishes them. He says the formal aspect of the object is the end of the work itself or the act itself. The intention is the end of the agent. So in place of end, we could say goal. So the purpose, formal or, yeah. aspect of the object is the, the goal of that activity. Like it's already ordered towards something. And then there's the further goal that we may have, and that's our intention. So take cooking food cooking food, right? like boiling water, putting pasta in. That's just a physical description. We call it cooking as a moral object. right? So why do I put the pasta in the boiling water? To make it edible. right? That's what it's naturally ordered toward. But there could be so many different reasons why a human chooses to cook, right? to boil pasta. It could be because they're hungry and they want to feed themselves. It could be because they want to become a chef and so they're practicing. It could be because they want to host a party. And so they would need to feed uh, all the people who come. Or it could be because they want to poison somebody and they're going to, you know, they know that they're celiac, gluten in, right, intolerant or something, or they're going to sprinkle some poison in with it to kill them. So those are all different intentions, but the object stays the same. So there's already some end to which the activity is ordered, and then there's the further goal that we might order it toward. So the church teaches you have to start with the object. You have to start with whether that object is good or bad. And if it's bad, that means it's an intrinsic evil. No intention, no circumstances could ever justify it. It can never make you a good person. But if it's a good object, we still have more work to do. Because like cooking, we could say cooking is a good object, but if I'm doing it to poison somebody, an innocent person, well now my evil intention has made the whole act evil. So we and have to evaluate the material cause. Um I would say the object would be the material cause, and then the intention we could say is the formal. formal, formal but even the object itself has material and formal aspects. Okay. Um, yeah, so you have to start with the object. If that's evil, then the whole act's evil. But if it's good, the intention also has to be good. And then after that, we look at the circumstances. Um, those usually just make a good act a little better, a little less good, or a bad act a little worse or a little less bad, but they don't change it. So again, going back to can prudence change the moral absolutes? No, right? The circumstances 
aren't going to change whether this is a good or bad thing. They just might make it a little better or a little worse. Okay. Uh, so let's say your reason you've decided that this is a good act, but then you the means in which you try to achieve that act is a is your your conscious is telling you to do it one way, but that's a that's a bad way of doing it. Uh, you mentioned earlier that then your culpability is probably a lot less, right? But are you still bound by your conscience? Like so, like so, you judged a reason to say this is this is a good thing. Now you have two ways of achieving that end. One is a good way. One objectively, one is a good way. One is a one is one is a bad way. But your conscience is telling you that the bad way is actually the good way. Do you have like uh like are you objectional like uh, like are you supposed to do what your conscience tells you? The short answer is yes. And this is at first this seems like a, a strange teaching of the church when when she teaches on conscience. This is right in the catechism. There are two principles you have to keep in mind when it comes to conscience. The first principle is you must always follow your conscience. The second principle, though, is you always have to form your conscience. So let's explain each one. Um, the, the church has pretty strong terms, like strong language for it. She says you must always follow your conscience because otherwise you'd be condemning yourself. And that seems like, wait, hold on a second. Like if my conscience is wrong, aren't I also condemning myself? So the way to think about it is there's kind of four possibilities. First of all, you could either have a right conscience or a wrong conscience, meaning either like you have an accurate judgment of the moral quality of the act or an inaccurate judgment. And then on top of that, you could either follow your conscience or go against it. Now, the easy examples are, let's say you have a right conscience. So if you have a right conscience and you follow it, obviously you're doing the right thing. If you have a right conscience and you go against it, obviously that's going to be bad. But why is it bad? It's because I know what's good and I'm willing evil. So I know this thing is evil, but I'm choosing it knowing that it's evil. So that is going to be directly and immediately corruptive of my soul. So that's going to be important. Because now when we look at the erroneous conscience, we said that conscience is in our heart of hearts that judgment of what we think is right or wrong. So if we have a wrong conscience, that means we misjudge. We think this good thing is bad or this bad thing is good. If I follow that wrong conscience, I'm going to be doing something that's objectively bad, right? That bad object that we talked about before. And we said that a bad object can't make the act good. But because it's what I believe in my heart of hearts is right, well, we have to take a closer look at why do you think that? And there could be many different reasons. It's usually different types of ignorance. So do I think this is the right action because there's no way I could have known better? That's called invincible ignorance, ignorance that we can't overcome. And if that's the case, then you're not at fault for what you've done because there's no way you could have known. More often, it's vincible ignorance, meaning we could have known better. Um, maybe we didn't put in as much effort as we should have, so we're still somewhat culpable, but maybe not completely culpable and blameworthy for what we've done. But we could also have deliberately fostered ignorance, like I had every opportunity to learn that this was right or that this was wrong, but I resisted it, right? I go to the bathroom every time Father preaches his homily, I skip out on CCD class, I right, never read the Bible, whatever it may be. Um, I deliberately foster that ignorance. Now, not only are you fully responsible for the wrong you've done, but you have this added sin on top of it of trying to keep yourself in the dark. But the cash out is if you follow your conscience, there's at least a chance that you're not fully responsible for what you've done. The alternative 
if I think this uh, bad action is good, and then I go against my conscience, now, like objectively speaking, I'm doing a good thing because I'm not doing that evil. But subjectively, I may think that I'm actually doing evil in that situation, which means I'm willing evil. And the evil intention is always going to be more directly corruptive of our soul. And that's the reason why the church says you always have to follow your conscience. But it's not enough to just follow your conscience, because if you have that wrong conscience, while we said you may be um, not fully responsible for the evil, it's, you're still doing a bad thing. That's still going to be corruptive of your soul. But it's just going to take a little longer. It can't lead to true happiness and freedom. So you have a responsibility, a moral duty, to form your conscience so we get in that right um, combination of right conscience and following it. Do you think that uh, invincible ignorance is becoming less and less of a an out, so to speak, based off of all the information that we're allowed, we're allowed yeah. to take in? Like, it seems like that invincible ignorance, you know, a hundred years ago would, would be a lot more prevalent because it's harder to, you know, learn. There's, you know, you have to less information is out there. Nowadays, you, you, you can go online and look up basically anything you want pretty quickly, you know, relatively quickly. Um, do you think that invincible ignorance is becoming less and less of a thing? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. Um, and I'm happy to go back and forth on this. On the one hand, yeah, absolutely. With the internet, like there's no excuse. You can look up the catechism. You can just Google search, what does the church teach on this? And you have that at your fingertips. But so those are going to be like the magisterially taught moral truths, very easy to get to. It seems like you wouldn't be able to be invincibly ignorant. But when it comes to, I don't know, more particular moral matters where there is disagreement in the church, there's so much like false information on the Internet as well that sometimes you can hmm. search something and, you know, is the church against um, contraception? Catechism says yes. Okay, there's my answer. But then all of a sudden, wait, what's this? What's this third hit on the Google? Oh, this blog where this person's, this priest is saying it's okay sometimes. And then that adds this whole like false narrative to the mix where I wonder how much that comes into play um, with kind of confusing hmm. people. So that, that's the modern situation. I even want to go back to like ancient times. Were they invincibly ignorant as much as we might think, right? Because like if it's part of our nature to just know like lying is wrong. Even the person, if they're immersed in this culture where like you're, you know, all your parents were thieves and everyone you know is a thief and all you do is lie all the time and you lie for survival. Is there some part of you that still says like this feels wrong? Um, so I just wonder in general, like how, I don't know, it's something I debate in my own mind, like is invincibly ignorant, is invincible ignorance very rare and has always been rare or was it common in the past, but it's rare now? I, I honestly don't know. I, um, I mean, this is why it's, I'm teaching moral theology, or I'm trying to help as many people as possible not be ignorant about these things so we don't have to deal with it. But, um, yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're right when you say uh, that, like, we're, it's written in our heart, you know, kind of what is right and wrong. I don't, I th I don't think... Uh, you know, Socrates knew what was what, what was just. You know, um, back back in the day, just like we should know what just justice is today. Um, and he didn't have internet back then, obviously. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. I think that's very interesting. I think that also goes back to kind of what you were talking about, though, surrounding yourself with people who are virtuous, you know, uh, imitating those who, who are virtuous, um, which help you form your conscience and form uh, your reason to, to know what is good and what is bad. Because, I mean, obviously, if you, if you, um, sorry, there's a, del there's a delay there. Sorry, I didn't realize you were, you jumped in. But I, I think, though, that there's, as, obviously, if you, uh, if you fall into vice, it corrupts your ability to reason, right? It, it darkens your intellect, so to speak. And so if you surround yourself with those who darken your intellect so, so much to the point where you don't, uh, have that thought of oh, this is not a good thing to do. Your conscience isn't pulling on you, isn't tugging on you. Well, that, that that's one thing. But if it, but surrounding yourself with those who uh, are living the virtuous life and pursuing holiness, um, it, it it doesn't corrupt your intellect as much, I guess. Yeah, the darkening of the mind is certainly there. Original sin, just making it in general harder for us to discern what the natural law is, to read that moral law written on our hearts. There are interesting dynamics when it comes to culpability. On the one hand, moral theologians will typically say, if it's a type of addiction, as the addiction takes hold, you're less and less free to choose against it, and so you're less and less culpable. Maybe it started as a mortal sin, but then it becomes venial over time. But it would be, it would be strange if that were always the case, right? With any vice, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's the way, and it's part of God's mercy or something that these incredible sinners wouldn't be you know, think of his last words on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. Maybe that's a great mercy if that were true. But it seems kind of strange to think like, if I become more vicious, then I'm less responsible for what I've done. And so it's almost like I'm better off just going full evil rather than being like kind of evil. Yeah, yeah. There were some moral theologians in one period saying that. They were saying, look, the culture doesn't listen to anything we say. We should just stop teaching morality, and then they won't be culpable for it. And I think of two things. One is, I think Jesus said it would be better for a, a millstone to be tied around your neck and thrown to the ocean than to do that, first of all. But second of all, what's the reason? Because you can't encounter Christ that way. I mean, Christ is truth. Christ is the moral law incarnate. Christ is virtue incarnate. If you don't know what's right, you have no chance to encounter Christ. And sure, so maybe you could skate through life not being responsible for any of the evil you do, then spend all this time in purgatory and eventually get to heaven. But isn't it better to have that opportunity to come to know Christ, to have this true happiness and freedom and flourishing in this life, even if the person might choose against it? Isn't it better for them to have that opportunity in that option, um, because otherwise, yeah, maybe they're not responsible, but they're still going to be miserable because everything they're choosing is just against their true happiness. Yeah, and I think that that's a, a good pivot, right? So we talked, kind of used prudence and, and conscience, uh, consciousness, 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 <laughs> consciousness. Uh, there it is. Um, you know, almost as a neg like the negative aspect, but. Maybe let's end on the positive aspect. Like, why, why even pursue this virtue? Why, why pursue virtue in general? Like, is it a, is it a good thing? Certainly a good thing. Um, 
it seems, I mean, it is demanding. And uh, was it Chesterton or somebody said that they have some quote about like anything worth doing, or uh, I'm gonna mess it up anyway. But basically, if just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't try, usually the most worthwhile things in life are the most difficult, right? Raising a family is difficult. Um, being a priest and having to minister to the church and always be on and never off, right? Like that's difficult. Um, pursuing a degree, excelling in your work, right? These are all difficult, but they're worth doing. Virtue is demanding, but first of all, we have God's grace to help us. And Jesus says his yoke is actually light, right? If we let him enter in to our efforts at growing in virtue, into our struggle, that should always be the first place we start is prayer, right? If, I, if you want to grow in a virtue, start with prayer. Sometimes we get this idea, um, I need to do what I can, and then I'll ask God for help. That's not what God wants. Like, ask for help first, or else you're never going to get to that point where you think you can ask for his help. You're never going to get to that level. So you start with prayer. That's going to make everything easier. But really, this is the gospel message. We, we think of St. Paul, and he talks about rejoice always, right? Always. When we look at St. Paul, a man who was beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked and uh, misunderstood and denied and rejected and ultimately beheaded, right? all these sufferings, and he still says, I rejoice. The hallmark of the Christian is joy, that Christian joy, that joy of the resurrection. If we don't have that, um, then what are we offering to the world? What's going to appeal people to Christianity? But virtue is part of that joy. Aquinas says the hallmark, the hallmark of virtue is to act with ease, promptness, and enjoyment. And who wouldn't want those? So often, again, St. Paul illustrates this perfectly. Why is it that I do the very thing that I hate and the thing that I want to do, I can't do? So often, I've experienced that in my life. It's like, I know I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do this other thing? Um, I've done this so many times before, and I know it's wrong. Why did I do it again? Wouldn't it be so much better to just not have that struggle, right? To be like, here's the right thing. I'm going to do it, and I actually want to do it. And that's that hard last step. It's one thing, it's good to do the right thing, even when it's kind of like, oh, you know, I wish I could do something else. But to have that, that true like freedom of like, here's, I'm doing the right thing, and I actually want to do it. I actually like doing it. Uh, that's the joy that we have with this life of virtue. That's the that's the message we want to get across. So is it hard? Yeah, but is it worthwhile? Absolutely. If we can have that freedom, if we can be at one with ourselves and not have this interior struggle, this tug of war between our reason and our emotions. In the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 5, verse 48, uh, Jesus says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think that's probably the most daunting verse in all of scripture, perhaps. But only if we misunderstand it. Because if we think, first of all, like we have to do it ourselves, like I have to become perfect and then God will love me. Obviously, that's impossible and that's wrong. So if you think of God accompanying you, yes, God can make us perfect. But the word in Greek there for perfect is teleos, which translates more to like whole, like be whole as your heavenly father is whole. Kind of like we started the conversation, there's different types of perfection. And the perfection he's calling us to is this wholeness, to be united, to be at peace. All right, so be whole like your Heavenly Father is whole. God is radically one. He's united and undivided. Um, he wants us to be one too. He doesn't want our reason to be against our emotions and our will caught in between. He wants them all to work in harmony toward one end. And then because we have that internal unity, 
we can give of ourselves to other people better. You can't give what you don't possess. So if I don't possess myself, I can't give myself. Once we have internal unity, we can have unity with our neighbor. And then all this is building toward our unity with God, which is the foundation, but also the culmination of all these things. So that's, that's the great joy of the life of virtue. It's, it's hard, but it's worth it. Yeah, and it seems like okay. So the, and I may end up going down another rabbit trail here, but it, but but it's just fun to talk to you about it because I don't get a chance to to do this very often. So, so but that's the difference between uh, uh, doing an, a virtuous act and being virtuous, right? I can do something that that is uh, I can be courageous in one moment, but that doesn't mean I have the virtue of uh, fortitude, right? And the more you become virtuous. Then the less you have to worry about yourself, your your appetites pulling and tugging against your will, and that way you give more time to uh, you're able to push your attention towards others, and eventually like share Christ's love with others, right? I mean, isn't that the whole purpose of of living the virtuous life so we can share the virtuous life with others? We look at God. God is a Trinity, and we're made in the image of God. So what? Who is God? He's three persons who eternally give themselves entirely to the other two persons and then receive entirely the other two persons. So it's this communion of just, just giving of oneself. I mean, St. John says, God is love, right? What is love? But giving yourself and then receiving the other. So if we're made in his image, that's really where our happiness is. So often we have, we're afraid of, of giving ourselves. We think if I give myself, maybe I'll lose myself, right? If I'm always acting for other people, when do I ever get to enjoy things myself? Um, we think of um, marriage as being, we talk about um, dying to self and living for your spouse and the tuxedo, the black representing death, right? So the man has to die to himself to live for his uh, spouse. And you think like, well, if I die to myself, like I kind of like myself, if I'm going to die, like what's left of me? And so it can be intimidating and scary. But when we make that leap of faith, when we step out there, um, what we recognize is that that's where we actually find ourselves. We don't lose ourselves when we give ourselves, we find ourselves. The Second Vatican Council said that um, Christ reveals man to himself. I think what that really gets at is God knows us better than we know ourselves. So if he's calling us to step out of our comfort zone, to, to give of ourselves to others, that's actually where we're going to find our happiness. He knows what is going to make us happy better than we do. If he's calling us to that, we make that leap it actually comes back to the word ecstasy, too. So um, I'm not talking about the drug here, but ecstasy, we think of like the saints. They have these ecstatic experiences. And the Greek ecstasis means to come out of oneself. So these ecstatic moments the saints had where they kind of came out of themselves and were just consumed by God. And we're called to that same ecstasy, as weird as that might sound, that the life of virtue is this perpetual coming out of oneself, living for others, and in that dying to self and living for others, that's where we actually find our true identity. We find ourselves rather than losing it. Uh, the world today does not understand what really erotic love truly is anymore, do they? Because uh, this is an ascension. It's an ascension to the true good and the beautiful. It, it, it draws you towards Christ. And we're, I'm drawing this analogy between us and God. Obviously, we're not the same as God. God can be giving all the time for us. We do need to receive as well. But that's where Pope Benedict was great. His first encyclical, Deus Caritas S, he talks about the agape and eros, ascending and descending love, the giving, but also the receiving, and how we need both for God, and we need both for our neighbor. Yeah. 
Andrew, man, it has been a blast talking to you. Congratulations on your new book. I know that it's not easy to write uh, a book, but congratulations. It's called Saintly Habits, Aquinas' Seven Simple Strategies You Can Use to Grow in Virtue. There it is right there. You can get it on ascensionpress.com. Andrew, thanks so much. Uh, any way they can stay up to date, see what, what you have going on? Um, th uh, right now, just Ascension Press's Twitter accounts and social media, all that. I don't have a website of myself yet, but I hope to write more books in the future, so I'm sure that'll be coming down the road. Um, otherwise, uh, I teach at Christendom College, and we sometimes post these live lectures, and I had one recently on, on growing in virtue, um, so that's another thing people could check out. Awesome. I'll try to uh, post that in the show notes as well for everybody. Great. Thank you. I had a blast. Andrew, thanks Adam. so much for hanging out. Yeah, it was, it was a, lot a lot of fun. fun. Let's Thank do it again. You. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah.